Chapter 5 of Syria, the Desert, and the Sown. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jordan Russell. Syria, the Desert, and the Sown by Gertrude Bell. Chapter 5. Salka, the city of King Og and Bashan, must have been a fortified place from the beginning of history. The modern village clusters around the base of a small volcano on the top of which built in the very crater is the ruined fortress this fortress and its predecessors in the crater formed the outpost of the Hauran mountains against the desert the outposts of the earliest civilization against the earliest marauders the ground dropped suddenly to the south and east and broken only by one or two volcanic mounds in the immediate neighborhood settles itself down into the long levels that reach euphrates stream Straight as an arrow from a bow, the Roman road runs out from Salkad into the desert in a line that no modern traveler has followed beyond the first two or three stages. The caravan tract in edge begins here and passes by Kaf and Ethra, along the Wadi Sirhan to Jaff and Hail, a perilous way, though the blunts pursued it successfully, and Uting after them. Uting's description of it, done with all the learning and minute observation of the German, is the best we have. Due south of Salkad, there is an interesting ruined fort, Kalat el Azraq, in an oasis where there are thickets full of wild boar. Dissot visited it and has given it an excellent account of his journey. No doubt there is more to be found still. The desert knows many a story that has not yet been told. And at Salkad, it is difficult to keep your feet from turning south. So invitingly mysterious are those great plains. I went at once to the house of Nasib el Atrash and presented Falah Ulissa's letter. Nasib is a man of twenty-seven, though he looks ten years older, short in stature, and sleek, with shrewd features of a type essentially druze, and an expression that is more cunning than pleasant. He received me in his mahkad, where he was sitting with his brother Jad Allah, a tall young man with a handsome but rather stupid face, who greeted me with bonjour and then relapsed into silence, having come to the end of all the French he knew. Just as he had borrowed one phrase from the European tongue, so he had borrowed one article of dress from European wardrobes. A high, stick-up collar was what he had selected, and it went strangely with his Arab clothes. There were a few druzes drinking coffee in the Mahkad, and one other whom I instantly diagnosed as an alien. He turned out to be Mudir el-Mal of the Turkish government. I do not know what his exact functions are, but his title implies him to be the agent of the treasury. Salkad is one of the three villages in Jebel Druze, the other being Swaida and Areh, where the sultan has a Kaimakam and a telegraph station. Yusuf Effendi, Kaimakam, and Milham Ilyan, Mudir el-Mal, were considerably surprised when I turned up from the desert without warning or permission. They dispatched three telegrams daily to the valley of Damascus, recounting all that I did and said, and though I was on the best terms with both of them, finding, indeed, Milhelm to be by far the most intelligent and agreeable man in the village. I feared I caused him much perturbation of mind. And here, let me say that my experience of Turkish officials leads me to count them among the most polite and obliging of men. If you come to them with the proper certificates, there is nothing they will not do to help you. When they stop you, it is because they are obliged to obey orders from higher authorities. And even when you set aside, as from time to time you must, refusals that are always couched in a language conciliatory to a fault, they conceal their just annoyance and bear you no ill will for the trouble you have caused them. The government agents at Salkad occupy an uneasy position. 
It is true that there has been peace in the mountains for the past five years, but the Druzers are a slippery race, and one quick to take offense. Milhelm understood them well, and his appointment to the new post at Salkad is proof of the Valley's genuine desire to avoid trouble in the future. He had been at Swida for many years before he came to Salkad. He was a Christian, and therefore not divided from the Druzes by the unbridged gulf of hatred that lies between them and Islam. And he was fully aware that the Turkish rule in the Jebel Haran depends on how little demand is made on a people nominally subject and practically independent. Yusef Effendi was not far behind him in the strength of his conviction on this head, and he had the best of reasons for realizing how shadowy his authority was. There are not more than 200 Turkish soldiers in all the mountain. The rest of the Ottoman forces are Druze Zaptias, well pleased to wear a government uniform and draw government pay on the rare occasion when it reaches them though they can hardly be considered a trustworthy guard if serious differences arise between their own people and the sultan. To all outward appearances, Nasib and his brother were linked by the closest bonds of friendship with the Kaimakam. They were forever sitting in his makad and drinking his coffee, but once, when we happened to be alone together, Yusef Effendi said, pathetically, in his stilted Turkish Arabic, I never know what they are doing. They look on me as an enemy." and if they wish to disobey orders from Damascus, they cut the telegraph wire and go their own way. What power have I to prevent them? Nevertheless, there are signs that the turbulent people of the mountain have turned their minds to other matters than war with the Osmanli, and among the chief of these are the steam mills that grind the corn of Salkad and a few villages beside. A man who owns a steam mill is pledged to maintain the existing order. He has built it at considerable expense, he does not wish to see it wrecked by an invading Turkish army, and his capital wasted. On the contrary, he hopes to make money from it, and his restless energies find new and profitable outlet in that direction. My impression is that peace rests on a much firmer basis than it did five years ago, and that the Ottoman government has not been slow to learn the lessons of the last war. If only the valley of Damascus could have known how favorable an opinion his recent measures would force on the mind of the intriguing Englishwoman. He might have spared his telegraph clerks several hours' work. There could scarcely have been a better example of the freedom with which the Druzes control their own affairs than was offered by an incident that took place on the very evening of my arrival. It had already been intimated on the authority of Fendi that the relation between the mountain and the desert were fraught with the usual possibilities of martial incident, and we had not spent an afternoon in Salkad without discovering that the great raid that had occurred some months previously was the topic that chiefly interested Nasib and his brother. Not that they spoke of it in their conversations with me, but they listened eagerly when we told of the raid on the Hassanyeh and the part that the Sukur had played in it, and they drew from us all that we knew or conjectured as to the present camping grounds of the latter tribe, how far the raiders had come, and in which direction retreated. The muleteers overheard men whispering at the street corners, and their whispers were of warlike preparations. The groups round Mikhail's fire, ever a center of social activity, spoke of injuries that could not be allowed to pass unnoticed, and one of the many sons of Muhammad's uncles had provided that famished Beiruti with a lunch flavored with the dark hints of a league between the Wadi Serhan and the Beni Sakir, which must be nipped in the bud ere it had assumed alarming proportions. The wave of the Gazoo can hardly reach as far as Salkad itself, but the harm is done long before it touches that point, especially in the winter when every four-footed creature except the mare necessary for riding is far away in the southern plain. My camp was pitched in a field outside the town at the eastern foot of the castle hill. 
The slopes to the north were deep in snow up to the ruined walls of the fortress, and even where we lay there were a few detached snowdrifts glittering under the full moon. I had just finished dinner and was debating whether it was too cold to write my diary when a sound of savage singing broke upon the night, and from the topmost walls of the castle a great flame leapt up into the sky. It was a beacon kindled to tell the news of the coming raid to the many Druze villages scattered over the plain below, and the song was a call to arms. There was a Druze Zaptia sitting by my campfire. He jumped up and gazed first at me and then at the red blaze above us. I said, Is there permission to my going up? He answered, There is no refusal. Honor us. We climbed together over the half-frozen mud, and by the snowy northern side of the volcano, edged our way in the darkness round the castle walls where the lava ashes gave beneath our feet, and came out into the full moonlight upon the wildest scene that our eyes could see. A crowd of druzes, young men and boys, stood at the edge of the moat on a narrow shoulder of the hill. They were all armed with swords and knives, and they were shouting phrase by phrase a terrible song. Each line of it was repeated twenty times or more, until it seemed to the listener that it had been bitten, as an acid bites the brass, onto the intimate recesses of the mind. Upon them, upon them, our Lord, our God, that the foe may fall, and swathe before our swords. Upon them, upon them, that our spears may drink at their hearts. Let the babe leave his mother's breast, let the young man arise and be gone. Upon them, upon them, O Lord, our God, that our swords may drink at their hearts. So they sang, and it was as though the fury of their anger would never end, as though the castle walls would never cease from echoing their interminable rage, and the night never again no silence, when suddenly the chant stopped and the singers drew apart and formed themselves into a circle, every man holding his neighbors by the hand. Into the circle stepped three young druzes with bare swords and strode round the ring of eager boys that enclosed them. Before each in turn they stopped and shook their swords and cried, Are you a good man? Are you a true man? and each one answered with a shout, Ha ha! The moonlight fell on the dark faces and glittered on the quivering blades. The thrill of martial ardor passed from hand to clasped hand, and earth cried to heaven, War, red war! And then one of the three saw me standing in the circle, and strode up and raised his sword above his head, as though nation saluted nation. Lady, he said, the English and the Druze are one. I said, Thank God, we too are a fighting race. Indeed, at the moment there seemed no finer thing than to go out and kill your enemy. And when this swearing in of warriors was over, we ran down the hill under the moon, still holding hands, and I, seeing that some were only children not yet full grown, said to the companion whose hand chance had put in mine, Do all these go with you? He answered, By God, not all. The ungrown boys must stay at home and pray to God that their day may soon come. When they reached the entrance of the town, the druzes leapt on to the flat house roof and took up their devilish song. The fire had burnt out on the castle walls, and the night struck suddenly cold, and I began to doubt whether if Milhelm in the valley of Damascus could see me taking part in the demonstration against the succour, they would believe in the innocence of my journey. So I turned away into the shadow and ran down to my tents and became a European again, bent on peaceful pursuits and unacquainted with the naked primitive passions of mankind. We had certain inquiries to make concerning our journey and stores to lay in before we set out for the eastern side of the mountain, where there are no big villages, and therefore we spent two days at Salkad. The great difficulty of the commissariat is barley for the animals. There had been enough for our needs at Umm er Rahman, but there was none at Salkad. It was always to be got at Sueda, which was the chief post of the Turkish government, for that was far away across the hills, and we decided to send down to Imtayan, the path thither being bare of snow. 
It is worth recording that in the winter, when all the flocks are several hours away in the plain, it is impossible to buy sheep in the mountain, and the traveller has to make shift with such scraggy chickens as he may find. The want of foresight which had left our larder so ill-furnished affected Mikhail considerably, for he prided himself on the roasting of a leg of mutton, and he asked me how it was that all the books I had with me had not hinted at the absence of the animal that could supply that delicacy. I answered that the writers of these works seemed to have been more concerned with the Roman remains than with such weighty matters as roasts and stews, whereat he said firmly, When your excellency writes a book, you will not say, Here there is a beautiful church and a great castle. The gentry can see that for themselves. But you shall say, In this village there are no hens. Then they will know from the beginning what sort of country it is. The first day of my visit I spent with Nassib watching him give orders for the grinding of the corn needed for the coming military expedition, to which we sedulously avoided any allusion. Photographing him and the notables of his village and lunching with him in the makad on gritty brown paper-like bread and dibs, a kind of treacle made from boiled grape juice, and a particularly nasty sort of soup of sour milk with scraps of fat mixed in it, kirk, the druzes call it, and to hold it in an unwarrantable esteem. In the afternoon, Nassib was riding some ten miles to the south to settle a dispute that had arisen between two of his villages, and he invited me to accompany him. But I thought that there were probably other matters on hand in which it might be awkward if a stranger were to assist, and I compromised by agreeing to go with him for an hour and turn aside to visit a shrine on top of a tell, the Willy el Kudur, who is no other than our St. George. Nassib rode out in style with twenty armed men by his side, himself arrayed with a long mantle of dark blue cloth embroidered in black, with a pale blue handkerchief tucked into the folds of his white turban that encircled his tarbush. The cavalcade looked very gallant, each man wrapped in a cloak and carrying his rifle across his knees. These rifles were handed to me one by one that I might read the lettering on them. They were of many different dates and origins, some antiquated pieces stolen from Turkish soldiers, the most French and fairly modern while a few came from Egypt and were marked with V.R. and the broad arrow. Nassib rode with me for a time and catechized me on my social status, whether I would ride at home with the King of England and what was the extent of my father's wealth. His curiosity was not entirely without a motive. The Druzes are always hoping to find some very rich European whose sympathies they could engage and who would finance and arm them if another war were to break out with the Sultan but so contemptuous was he of the modest competence which my replies revealed that I was roused to ask subsequently, by methods more tactful than those of Nasib, what was wealth in the mountain. The answer was that the richest of the Tarshan Hamoud of Swaida had an income of about 5,000 Napoleons. Nasib himself was not so well off. He had some 1,000 Napoleons yearly. Probably it comes to him mainly in kind. All revenues are derived from the land, and very considerably with the fortunes of the agricultural year. The figures given me were, I should think, liberal and dependent on a reckoning according with the best harvest rather than with the mean. Presently, Nassib fell behind and engaged in a whispered conversation with an old man who was his chief adviser, while the others crowded round me and told me tales of the desert and of great ruins to the south, which they were prepared to show me if I would stay with them. At the foot of the tell we met a group of horsemen waiting to impart to Nasib some important news about the Arabs. Mikhail and I stood aside, having seen our host look doubtfully at us out of the corner of his eyes. That tidings were not good was all we heard, and no one could have learnt even that from Nasib's crafty, unmoved face. 
and eyes concealed beneath the lids as if he wished to make sure that they should not reveal a single flash of his thoughts. Here we left him, to his evident relief, and rode up the tell. Now there is never a prominent hill in the Jebel Druze, but it bears a sanctuary on its summit, and the building is always one of those early monuments of the land that date back to the times before Druze or Turk came into it. What is their history? Were they erected to Nabataean gods of rock and hill, to Drusara and Alat, and the pantheon of Semitic inscriptions whom the desert worshipped with sacrifice at the Kaaba and on many a solitary mound? If this be so, the old divinities still bear sway under changed names, still smell the blood of goats and sheep sprinkled on the black doorposts of their dwellings, still hear the prayers of pilgrims carrying green boughs and swaths of flowers. As at the well of El Kudur, there is always in the interior of the sanctuary an erection like a sarcophagus, covered with shreds of colored rags, and when you lift the rags and peer beneath, you find some queer block of tufa, worn smooth with libations, and own brother to the black stone at Mecca. Near at hand there was a stone basin for water. The water was iced over that day, and the snow had drifted in through the stone doors, and was melting through the roof, so that it lay in muddy pools on the floor. The next day was exceedingly cold, with a leaden sky and a bitter wind, the forerunner of snow. Milhem Ilion came down to invite me to lodge with him, but I refused, fearing that I should feel the temperature of my tent too icy after his heated room. He stayed some time, and I took the opportunity of discussing with him my plan of riding into the Safa, the volcanic waste east of the Jebel Druze. He was not at all encouraging. Indeed, he thought the project impossible under existing conditions. For it seemed that the Gia, the tribe that inhabits the Safa, were up in arms against the government. They had waylaid and robbed the desert post that goes between Damascus and Baghdad, and were expecting retribution at the hands of the valley. If, therefore, a small escort of Zaptias were to be sent with me, they would assuredly be cut to pieces. Milhem agreed, however, that it might be possible to go in alone with the Druzes, though anything short of an army of soldiers would be useless. And he promised to give me a letter to Mohammed and Nasser, Sheikh of Saleh, whom he described as a good friend of his and a man of influence and judgment. The Giath are in the same position with regards to the Druzes as are the Jebeliah. They cannot afford not to be on good terms with the mountain, since they are dependent on the high pasturages during the summer. Towards sunset, I returned Melham's visit. His room was full of people, including Nasib, newly returned from his expedition. They made me tell them of my recent experiences in the desert, and I found that all of my friends were counted as foes by the Druzes, and they have no allies save the Giath and the Jebeliah. The Shararat, the Dajah, the Beni Hassan, there were a score of blood against them all. In the desert, the word Gom, foe, is second to none save only for Daif, guest. But in the mountain, it comes easily first. I said, O Nasib, the Druzes are like those of whom the Kuryat ibn Unif sang, when he said, A people who, when evil bears its teeth against them, fly out to meet it in companies or alone. The sheikh's subtle countenance relaxed for a second, but the talk was drifting too near dangerous subjects, and he rose shortly afterwards and took his leave. His place was filled by newcomers. Milham's coffee pots must be kept boiling from dawn till late at night and presently one entered whom they all rose to salute. He was a Kurdish aga, a fine old man with a white mustache and a clean-shaven chin, who comes down from Damascus from time to time on some business of his own. Milhem is a native of Damascus and had much to ask and hear. 
the talk left desert topics and swung round to town dwellers and their ways and views. Look you, your excellencies, said a man who was making coffee over the brazier. There are no religion in the towns as there is in country places. Yes, pursued Melham. May God make it yes upon you, ejaculated the curd. May God requite you, O Aga. You may find men in the great mosque at Damascus, at the Friday prayers, and a few, perhaps, at Jerusalem. But in Beirut and in Smyrna, the mosques are empty, and the churches are empty. There is no religion any more. My friends, said the Aga, I will tell you the reason. In the country, men are poor, and they want much. Of whom should they ask of it but God? There is none other that is compassionate to the poor, save he alone. But in the towns they are rich. They have got all they desire. And why should they pray to God if they want nothing? The lady laughs. Is it not so among our own people? I confess that there were very little difference in the matter between Europe and Asia, and presently left the party to pursue their coffee drinking and their conversation without me. Late at night someone came knocking at my tent, and a woman's voice cried to me, Lady, lady, a mother's heart, are not the English merciful? Listen to the sorrow of a mother's heart, and take this letter to my son. I asked the unseen suppliant where her son was to be found. In Tripoli, in Tripoli of the West. He is a soldier and an exile. He came not back with the others after the war. Take this letter and send it by a sure hand from Damascus, for there is no certainty in the posts of Salkad. I unfastened the tent and took the letter, she crying the while. The wife of Nasib told me that you were generous. A mother's heart, you understand, a mother's heart that mourns. So she departed weeping, and I sent the mysterious letter by English post from Beirut, but whether it ever reached Tripoli of the West and the Druze exile, we shall not know. The Kaimakam came out to see us off the next morning and provided us with a Druze Zaptia to show us the way to Saleh. The wind was searchingly cold, and the snow was reported to lie very deep on the hills, for which reason we took the lower road by Orman, a village memorable as the scene of the outbreak of the last war. Milhelm had entrusted my guide, Yusef, with the mail that had just come in to Salkad. It consisted of one letter only, and that was for a Christian, an inhabitant of Orman, whom we met outside the village. They had sent him over thirty liras between them the year before. He bubbled over with prideful joy as we handed him the letter containing fresh news of them. At Orman the road turned upwards. I continued to call it a road for want of a name bad enough for it. It is part of the Druze system of defense that there shall be no track in the mountain wide enough for two to go abreast, or smooth enough to admit any pace beyond a stumbling walk and it is this part that is most successfully carried out. We were soon in snow, half melted, half frozen, concealing the holes in the path, but not firm enough to prevent the animals from breaking through into them. Occasionally there were deep drifts on which the mules embarked with the utmost confidence only to fall midway and scatter their packs, while the horses plunged and reared till they almost unseated us. Mikhail, who was no rider, bit the slush several times. The makers of the Palestine exploration map have allowed their fancy to play freely over the eastern slopes of the Jebel Druze. Hills have hopped along for miles, and villages have crossed ravines and settled themselves on the opposite banks. As for instance, Abuzraik, which stands on the left bank of the Wadi Rajil, though the map places it on the right. At the time it all seemed to fit with the general malevolence of that day's journey, and our misery culminated when we entered on an interminable snowfield swept by a blizzard of cutting sleet. At the dim end of it, quite unapproachably far away, we could just see through the sleet the slopes of which Celeste stands. But as we plodded on mile after mile, it was useless to attempt to ride on our stumbling animals and far too cold besides. 
we gradually came near, and having traveled seven hours to accomplish a four-hours march, we splashed and waded late in the afternoon through the mounds of slush and pools of water that did duty as streets. There was not a dry place in all the village, and the snow was falling heavily. Clearly there was nothing to be done but to beat at the door of Mohammed and Nassar, who has an honored reputation for hospitality, and I made the best of my way up the steps, sheeted with ice, to his makad. If Providence owed us any compensation for the discomforts of the day, it paid us, or at least it paid me, full measure and running over, by the enchanting evening I spent in the sheikh's house. Mohammed and Nassar is a man full of years and wisdom who has lived to see a large family of sons and nephews grow up round him, and to train their quick wits by his own courteous and gracious example. All the Druzes are essentially gentlefolk, but the house of the sheikhs of Salah cannot be outdone in good breeding, natural and acquired, by the noblest of the aristocratic races, Persian or Rajputs, or any others distinguished beyond their fellows. Milhelm's letter was quite unnecessary to ensure me a welcome. It was enough that I was cold and hungry and an Englishwoman. The fire in the iron stove was kindled, my wet outer garments taken from me, cushions and carpets spread on the divans under the sheik's directions, and all the band of his male relations, direct and collateral, dropped in to enliven the evening. We began well. I knew that Oppenheim had taken his escort from Salah when he went into the Safa, and I happened to have his book with me. How often had I regretted that a wise instinct had not directed my choice towards Dussault's two admirable volumes rather than to Oppenheim's ponderous work, packed with information that was of little use on the present journey. The great merit of the book lies in the illustrations, and fortunately there were among them a portrait of Mohammed and Nassar with his two youngest children. Having abstracted Kiepert's maps, I was so generous as to present the tomb to one of the family who had accompanied the learned German upon his expedition. It has remained at Salez to be a joy and glory to the sheiks, who will look at the pictures and make no attempt to grapple with the text, and the hole in my bookshelves is well filled by the memory of their pleasure. We talked without ceasing during the whole evening, with a brief interval when an excellent dinner was brought in. The old sheik, Yusuf the Zaptia, and I partook of it together, and the eldest of the nephews and cousins finished up the ample remains. The topic that interested them most at Soler was the Japanese war. Indeed, it was in that direction that conversation invariably turned in the mountain, the reason being that the Druzes believed the Japanese to belong to their own race. The line of argument which has led them to this astonishing conclusion is simple. The secret doctrines of their faith hold out hopes that some day an army of Druzes will burst out of the furthest limits of Asia and conquer the world. The Japanese had shown indomitable courage. The Druzes also are brave. The Japanese had been victorious. The Druzes of prophecy will be unconquerable. Therefore, the two are the one and the same. The sympathy of everyone, whether in Syria or in Asia Minor, is on the side of the Japanese, with the single exception of the members of the Orthodox Church, who look on Russia as their protector. It seems natural that the Ottoman government should rejoice to witness the discomfiture of their secular foes, but it is more difficult to account for the pleasure of Arab, Druze, apart from the secret hopes of the Druzes above mentioned, and Kurd, between whom and the Turk there is no love lost. These races are not wont to be gratified by the overthrow of the Sultan's enemies, a class to which they themselves generally belong. At bottom, there is no doubt a certain schadenfreude and a natural impulse to favor the little man against the big bully, and behind all there is that curious link which is so difficult to classify except by the name of a continent, and the war appeals to the Asiatic because it is against the European. 
However eagerly you may protest that the Russians cannot be considered as a type of European civilization, however profoundly you may be convinced that the Japanese show as few common characteristics with Turk or Druze as they show a Southeast Islander or Eskimo, East calls to East, and the voice awakens echoes from the China Seas to the Mediterranean. We talked also of the Turk. Mohammed had been one of the many sheiks who were sent into exile after the Druze War. He had visited Constantinople, and his experiences embraced Asia Minor also, so that he was competent to hold an opinion on Turkish characteristics. In a blind fashion, the fashion in which the Turk conducts most of his affairs, the wholesale carrying off of the Druze sheiks and their enforced sojourn for two or three years in distant cities of the empire has attained an end for which far-sighted statesmanship might have labored in vain. Men who would otherwise not have traveled fifty miles from their own village have been taught perforce some knowledge of the world. They have returned to exercise semi-independence almost as they did before, but their minds have received, however reluctantly, the impression of the wide extent of the sultan's dominions, the infinite number of his resources, and the comparative unimportance of Drew's revolts in the empire which yet survives, though it is familiar with every form of civil strife. Mohammed has been so completely convinced that there was a world beyond the limits of the mountain, that he had attempted to push two of his six sons out into it by putting them into a government office in Damascus. He had failed, because, even with his maxims in their ears, the boys were too headstrong. Some youthful neglect of duty, followed by a sharp rebuke from their superior, had sent them hurrying back to the village where they could be independent sheiks, idle and respected. Mohammed took in a weekly sheet published in Damascus, and the whole family followed with the keenest interest in the news of foreign politics, of English politics in particular, as escaped the censor's pencil. Important events sometimes eluded their notice, or that of the editor, for my host asked after Lord Salisbury, and were deeply grieved to hear that he had been dead for some years. The other name they knew, besides Lord Cromer's, which is known always and everywhere, was that of Mr. Chamberlain. And thus there started in the Makad at Saleh an animated debate on the fiscal question, lavishly illustrated on my part with examples drawn from the Turkish Gumruk, the Custom House. It may be that my arguments were less exposed to contradiction than those which most free traders are in a position to use, for the whole of Salaire rejected the doctrines of protection and retaliation. There was no halfway house here, with unanimity. There was only one point which was not settled with perfect satisfaction to all, and that was my journey to Safa. I have a shrewd suspicion that Milhelm's letter, which had been handed to me sealed, so that I had not been able to read it, was of the nature of that given by Pratis to Bellerophon when he sent him to the king of Lycia, and that if Mohammed had not been commanded to execute the bear on arrival, he was strongly recommended to discourage her project. At any rate, he was of the opinion that the expedition could not be accomplished unless I would take at least twenty druzes as escort, which would have involved so much preparation and expenses that I was obliged to abandon the idea. At ten o'clock, I was asked at what hour I wished to sleep, and, to the evident chagrin of the members of the company who had not been riding all day in the snow, I replied that the time had come. The sons and nephews took their departure. Wadded quilts were brought in and piled into three beds, one on each of the three sides of the immense divan. The sheik, Yusuf, and I tucked ourselves up, and I knew no more till I woke in the sharp frost of the early dawn. I got up and went out into the fresh air. Saleh was fast asleep in the snow. Even the little stream that tumbled in and out of the Roman fountain in the middle of the village was sleeping under a thick coat of ice. In the clear and cold silence I watched the eastern sky redden and fade, 
and the sun sent a long shaft of light over the snowfield through which we had toiled the day before. I put up a short thanksgiving appropriate to the fine weather, roused the muleteers and the mules from their resting place under the dark vaults of the Khan, ate the breakfast which Mohammed and Nassar provided, and took a prolonged and most grateful farewell of my host and his family. No better night's rest and no more agreeable company can have fallen to the lot of any wanderer by plain and hill than were accorded to me at Saleh. End of chapter 5